Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 35. I'm continuing with the uh, the dating of uh, particularly British long case clocks, okay? So let's continue on. So a later mechanism operated a hand moving backward or forward over a circular dial, or more usually over a sector in a brake arch dial to indicate how much the sun was fast or slow of the clock at any time. The hand was operated by a kidney-shaped cam that turned once a year. Another invention that can be credited to the remarkable Christian Huygens in 1795. However, Joseph Williamson claimed the invention and to have produced every equation clock made in England up until 1719. He worked with Daniel Quare and made the equation work for Quare's clocks. An equation clock by Williamson of approximately circa 1625 is his, his last. Dials showing the phase and age of the moon are almost as early as clocks showing the hours. There is a clock with such an indication dated 1700 by Fromentiel and Clark, numbered 127. But they were not often incorporated in long case clocks before the introduction of the break arch dial, which was well shaped for their location. London makers did not seem to have, have been much concerned with moon dials, but they were popular with country makers, particularly after about the mid 18th century. A lunation is approximately 29 and a half days. Since it is impossible to have 29 and a half teeth turned a tooth a day, twice the number would be 59, was cut and a tooth moved every 12 hours. So a moon face behind a circular aperture shows the phase and a number near the edge of the disk with the age. A moon dial in the arch has 118 teeth, which is advanced a tooth every 12 hours, so that the disc turns once every two lunations. It has two moon faces painted on it, diametrically opposite each other. The aperture in the break arch is shaped so that it conceals both moon faces and the new moon. The moon on the left then gradually waxes until the central position when it is full and wanes behind the semicircular hump on the right when the other face is due to follow. The same moving dial will give just the moon's age, but the state of the local tide because the varying gravitational pull on the moon according to its age is mainly responsible for the tides. Another factor in the configuration of the local estuary or harbor, so a tidal clock was often made for a particular place. However, some makers discovered that the ring with the tidal times only had to be made a fraction tight to provide a universal dial that could be set for any place with regards to tides. Tidal times are usually in Roman figures to avoid any confusion with the moon's age in Arabic figures. The Isaac Nichols clock, uh, circa 1740, 
uh, numbered 187, has such a tidal clock. The purpose of the auxiliary dials on musical clocks is self-evident. To select the tunes and to silence them all at will, and sometimes to repeat a tune. There are often several tunes, one for each day of the week at, at times, including perhaps a religious one just for Sundays. So from the beginning, the brass dial of a long case clock was made in two pieces, a square dial plate and a circular band bearing the hours for chapters, or called the chapter ring. Soon, or very soon, four ornamental spandrels were added. By screwing each to a corner of the dial plate by passing a screw through a hole in the dial plate and into a threaded hole into the spandrel. The dial plate was first polished and engraved. Very soon it became standard practice to mat the inner zone, the central zone, and gild the dial plate and spandrels while the chapter ring was silvered or occasionally made of solid silver, but this was very, very rare. The chapter ring is attached to the dial plate by four short pillars. The dial feet, the shouldered ends of which pass through the holes in the dial plate, are secured by tapered pins. The dial plate is fixed to the front plate of the movement in the same way. From about 1770, specialist dial makers began to supply one-piece painted iron dials. To overcome the lack of standardization, they sometimes introduced a false plate made of iron, to which the dial was attached by the usual four feet. The clockmaker could then use three or four feet on a false plate where he wished, to avoid striking and other work on the front plate of the movement. False plates are not ordinarily found on London clocks. The sequence of changes in style, in style of dials is much the same as with bracket clocks, but with one exception, the size, which is much more significant with long case clocks. It increased from under 10 inches square and, in, in most cases, to about 11 inches before 1700, and then grew to about 12 inches, and in some cases even to 14, as the years of the square dial passed. The break arch, which was gradually introduced from about 1710 or a little later, and became the most common shape before mid-century, was usually about 12 inches wide and 16 inches tall. Early dials have chapter rings with narrow bands or hands to suit. Between the Roman numerals are decoration representing the half hours. Twin circles engraved inside the chapters are divided into 48, four divisions between each hour, to represent the quarters. Outside the chapters, another twin ring is engaged and divided into 60 to represent the minutes. Usually these are numbered for every five minutes, but occasionally the maker of an early clock numbered every minute, as on the John Nib clock, circa 1676. Minutes were at first numbered by small figures appearing within the ring of minute divisions, but as the chapter ring was widened from about 1680 to 1685, the minute numerals were moved outside the minute divisions, which is a useful dating point. So therefore, minute numerals became bigger and bigger 
until they reached their optimum size about 1725. Minute divisions were retained throughout the long case period, but their numerals were omitted occasionally towards the end. Quarter-hour divisions, though, a relic of the one-hand clock, were important to an early owner, it seems, because he could read the quarter from the hour and not from the minute hand, being confused only by two concentric hands. They persisted not for the minute hand, but for many years, to about 1650 and beyond in many clocks, until, it seems, even the more sophisticated owner had become used to reading quarters from the minute hand alone. Because the quarter was much used an, a much used interval of time, the next division that came into common was the half-quarter. Some makers appear to have thought it important enough to mark half-quarters outside the minute ring, from about 1690 to, say, maybe 1710. It may have been a fashionable London fad without much significance. Usually the pattern is related to that of the full half-hour ornament. Half-hour ornaments do not vary much, usually being a fleur-de-lis or some modification of it, a diamond, three balls in a triangle joined by lines, or an ornamental H-shaped design. They overlapped and appeared at different times, but some makers favored one or the other. All clocks had them until about 1725, and most continued to do so until about 1750. Well, not only half, but quarter-hour divisions were often omitted. Usually a single engraved line was left where the hour divisions used to be. But even that began to go around 1790. The two-part dial was gradually superseded from around 1770 by a one-piece dial, which was simply a dial plate with all the dial information on it. There were two types. A brass dial, silvered all over, with the indications engraved on it and filled with black wax. Such dials were used by Graham for his regulators from around 1740 and on. And the iron dial with painted indications and decoration. The first was more expensive and used by a few of the late in London makers. The Volumi clock and Mudge and Dutton clock are perfect examples of that. The painted dial was at first plain with simple ornamentation based on the previous brass dials, which became more elaborate and scenic as the years passed. Painted dials were seldom a feature of London clocks. There was one in a collection bearing the name of C. Halley, London of 1780, and another by a West Country maker, C. Moore, C. Period Moore, dated approximately 1790. Although true enamel dials for example, finished by vitreous enamel, fired on the surface, including, including the indications and decorations are rare on long case clocks. But there are two examples, one by R. Cumber of 1778 and T. Clare of 1790. One of the problems of manufacture was to fire such a large surface without blemish and without warping the metal substrate, which was used usually countered by enameling on both sides. Another problem was that of the enamel was easily chipped around the winding holes. Comber overcame this hazard by locating the winding squares below the dial. 
Spandrels pass through several distinctive design phases that are useful guides for us to date today. It must be remembered that, as they were screwed on, they could easily have been changed. The same remark applies to hands. Some makers had their own hand designs before specialist handmakers eventually flooded the market. But spandrels seem to have been the product of the specialist trade much earlier, and were obviously have been finished by filing and burnishing before gilding. The relief became less as the spandrels became more elaborate, and with foliage designs, there were rarely much attempt, if any, to clean them up at all after casting. The twin cherub designs are the two main patterns. The main difference between the one has a wider crown and the cherubs hold crossed maces as well as on the crown. The idea of having two figures undoubtedly came about because William and Mary were on the throne at the time. Their reign was from, from 1689 to 1702, which gives a starting date for the fashions of the 1690s but it continued until about 1730 or so. So, many examples are nearly all in the crossed May style, which is to be expected as the most favored by London makers. The use of other patterns can be followed by um, carefully looking at much advanced museum collections. Early hands, though, already me mentioned uh, later or earlier in this podcast under bracket clocks, are easily recognized, especially when associated with narrow chapter rings. They were made to fit the chapter rings, the lengths being exactly right for the sides. This attention to detail soon went with the change in style of the hands and the wider chapter rings. The major, major change in style were to the cross-over pattern of the hour hand, still with a pointer minute hand, and this was about 1770, and to the matching hands where the tips of the hour minute hands were identically the same, and this was around 1800. Signatures of ma uh, makers were at first engraved along the bottom edge of the dial plate with their locations and Latinized. So by and about 1700, Latin had been almost abandoned, although the um, a Gould example is an exception, the clock being dated 1750. Uh, Thomas Tompion designed his clocks on a panel or cartouche on the zone from at least 1780, was followed by others, um, and continued to use Latin till after 1700. The day of the month aperture is usually square and somewhere in the lower part of the zone, although there was fashion for round holes for a period from 1780 to 1680 to 1700 or later in London, this was a time when decorative engraving was being used to embellish the area around spandrels. Early dial plates had engraved borders, a feature that did not survive long into the 18th century on London-made clocks. The zone, as mentioned, was at first polished. When matting took over, as with many other features, it was at first well executed, but soon, as most things do, started to deteriorate. Generally, it is finer on quality clocks. Winding, winding holes are most of the time plain, but a ringed hole appeared about 1680, 
and can still be seen on some clocks dated even up until 1730. One distinctive feature that had a short but apparently popular life was the skeletonized chapter ring. There are several examples um, in major museums, particularly the British Museum. Frontemille's first cases were constructed on a carcass of oak, veneered with ebony or with pear wood, stained black to resemble ebony. This process, known as ebonizing oak and pine, were also stained to ebonize them. The long case was paneled on both sides of the door, which is long with three panels, the middle one being shorter than the other two. Such a case was usually short, around six feet, and narrow, because the pendulum was only about 10 inches long, and the, an architectural, somewhat of a portico-type top hood with plain pillars and brass capitals. Frontemille's casemaker was a Joseph Clifton of Bullhead Yard in Cheapside, London, the only casemaker of the time of whom records have ever been found. The style followed that of the Dutch and German <coughs> cabinets. Edward East followed the architectural style of Frontemille and his partner Thomas Looms, but soon other makers began to favor the flat hood with barley twist pillars. The same trend as with bracket clocks as well as other woods and the ebonized architectural style all at once vanished. So there is a clear distinction outwardly of clocks made before and after, say, 1670 to 1675, mainly in size, because that was when the long pendulum came into universal favor. There was, however, another major style change that makes an invaluable dating point and is purely stylistic. Below the hood is a molding attached to the top of the case to lead an eye from a narrow trunk to a wider wood. Before about 1700, this was convex. Afterwards, over a period of only a few years, it became concave and remained so many, through so many fashion and other changes of design. So, the long case clock being a dominant feature of a room was usually regarded as much a piece of furniture as a clock itself, and much more so than the average bracket clock. It was therefore more susceptible to trends in fashion, particularly in woods and case finishes, although not usually totally in step with furniture. So this is unfortunate that so little is known of the case makers, whose work is sometimes more admired than that of the clockmaker, whose signature appears on the dial. I think this uh, is a good cutting off point for us today. Um, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, I'll be signing off. And just please remind uh, everyone, if you want to see uh, the Historic Preservationist in action, go to the our YouTube channel, all one word, The Historic Preservation, lowercase. And you're going to see several hundred videos there. And please hit the subscribe button. Thanks, everyone, for listening.